0: Our scripture reading is taken from chapters one and two of the book of Nehemiah. I will be reading from the New International Version. Please pray with me. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, may our ears be attentive to your word. May David expound it faithfully, and may the Holy Spirit write it on our hearts. We ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Nehemiah chapter one. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kisleph, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We continue reading Nehemiah's prayer at chapter 1, verse 11. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, The king granted my requests. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Uh, If you uh, look in the bulletin, you'll see that on the front cover, it says we are reading a text from the book of Ezra. And when Maggie read it, and inside the bulletin, it says that we're reading from Nehemiah. And a couple of weeks ago, a couple of you came up to me and said, Oh, we don't hear many sermons on Ezra very exciting to hear that and you may of course think that this was an intentional bait and switch if you understand what the book of Nehemiah is usually about because if you've heard a sermon on the book of Nehemiah it's probably because you were at a church that was doing a building campaign and you knew at the end of the sermon they were going to ask for money for their building campaign and you probably thought oh They said Ezra, because people are interested in servants from Ezra, but then they bait and switched us, and they put, that is not the case. I promise it was simply a mistake. I also promise you that we are not looking at the book of Nehemiah uh, in order to do a building project for our church. In fact, I'm not even sure that that's really what the book of Nehemiah is about. We're doing a series on what is covenant renewal what it means to be truly engaged in worship. And in previous sermons, we looked at the fact that what happened in Jerusalem at the temple in Old Testament times was the key and the central piece of worship. So true worship, enabling true worship, meant reconstructing that temple, reconstructing that altar, reconstructing the city of Jerusalem. So in Old Testament times, faithfully making it possible for God's people to truly worship, to engage in true worship, was about building, rebuilding this temple and these walls. A little bit of history. This is about 150 years after the Babylonian exile, when it, the Jerusalem was sacked, and most of the Jews were taken into exile in Babylon. It's about 70 years since the Persians sacked the Babylonians, and allowed an expatriation to go back and start rebuilding uh, and things aren't going well. And the pattern of Nehemiah presents this cycle all the way through the book. It's a cycle which goes calamity followed by prayerful action. Calamity, prayerful action. Calamity, prayerful action. And I would submit to you that the calamity is optional. But the prayerful action is not optional. At least the calamity is out of our control. But in terms of what it means to move into covenant renewal, move back into a place where we're living and acting faithfully, this idea of prayerful action needs to be the center of our lives, the center of who we are, the center of the core of our beings. So today's sermon has one single idea. What is prayerful action? What does it mean to be prayerfully active faithful christians we're going to look at that idea then we're going to conclude with a reality check we're going to actually add a little piece of theology which isn't talked about much but is seriously overlooked in the church to make sense of prayer which is this idea of hope horizons so we're going to look at this idea of prayer action and then we're going to do a reality check and unpack or give you this concept Of a hope horizon uh, to give clarity and make sense of how that applies to us so let's jump in why why you might ask a sermon on prayer isn't this the second thing you learn in Sunday school the first thing you learn is everything is about Jesus the second thing you learn is you should pray well maybe that is true but uh, the question I have is have we really learnt that lesson Are we really living out that practice? Is our life grounded and centered in prayer or do we need a refresher? And I think this book of Nehemiah keeps on pointing to this need, this covenant renewal idea of refreshing our faith, refreshing our understanding of God, refreshing our commitment to the covenant by refreshing and engaging in a more and more vibrant prayer life. If you're familiar with Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary from Britain who went to China. He was revolutionary in the missionary world and then he was one of the first missionaries to allow working class people to be engaged in mission activities. He's one of the first missionaries to invite women into the mission field. He was one of the first missionaries to say, you don't have to be an Anglican, you can be in any denomination you want to go into the mission field. He was also politically active in that in China He fought against the opiate trade, which Europe and Britain were supporting, and he assimilated into the culture. He dressed and behaved and engaged as one of the local Chinese people. And people attribute 18,000 conversions to Hudson Taylor in China. Maybe you're familiar with David Wilkinson. And this is what, by the way, Hudson Taylor had to say about the combination of prayer, and work, or praying as work, or praying as action. You can work without praying, but it achieves very little. But you cannot pray without working. David Wilkinson, you might be familiar with his book, The Sword and the Switchblade, which looks at a a inner city New York church that went and addressed the gang population in a very remarkable and radical way in the 60s. Now, most people know the story of him holding up a Bible against the switchblade and the dramatic and intense confrontation that happened. What you may not know is how David Wilkinson ended up getting into that ministry activity. He was watching The Late Show, and when I was reading up on this, I don't know whether this was uh, Carson or this was Letterman, But he was watching The Late Show as he did every night, and he had a thought to himself, I wonder what would happen if instead of watching these hours of television, I spent the time in prayer. So he sold his TV, a radical choice, I think, for most of us. He sold his TV and he invested that time in prayer. And after a few months, God put on his heart a Time Magazine article about gangs. And then as he kept praying, as he kept leaning into that prayer, kept investigating doing the work of what does this mean what can we do what can be done he eventually started the process which led to the book which we now know as the cross and the switch that mission activity began and started and was grounded in prayer and I know what you're saying That's fine for Hudson Taylor. That's fine for David Wilkinson. Missionaries, evangelists, pastors, they're supposed to pray. They're supposed to ground their work in prayer. I work in the real world, a pluralist world. I work in a world that doesn't have any respect for God. I work in the workplace where there's politics and all sorts of intrigue with my boss. I work in a world where my neighbors don't hold the same values that I work in. I work in the real world, and I'm way too busy to pray like this. I don't have kingdom problems. I have real world problems, work problems, school problems, relationship problems. Now, it may come as a surprise then that this man, Nehemiah, who was absolutely and definitely, as we'll see, a man of prayer, was also a man who lived in the pluralist world civil servant world. He was working in the real pluralist world like we do. Now it says in there that he was a cupbearer. It's important for us to understand what a cupbearer is. We think of a cupbearer because we see the movies where you take a little taste and you stand back and you give the cup to the king. And that's the smallest, smallest part of what a cupbearer in the ancient world was. Yes, he was usually responsible for all of the security around the king. He was the head of the security division for the king, but he was also someone who helped out the king politically. He gave him advice about how to do things, and he also helped him out in terms of his policy. He gave policy advice to to the king. So really, when we see Cupbearer here, it's almost a number two position in the government. You can think of it as being, to the president, like the head of the Secret Service, his chief strategist, and his senior policy advisor all wrapped into one. So Nehemiah then is a supreme organizer, a phenomenal administrator, a real go-getter and a doer, a mover and a shaker, a maker of things happen. And he is used to what it means to walk in circles of power, of politics. He knows what it is to drink good wine, eat good food, and to live comfortably he's aware of what it means to navigate a paranoid king. Now, I say paranoid because back then in the ancient world, you had to be paranoid as a king. We're used to the biggest scandal in the royal family being Meghan Markle saying that someone said something nasty about her. In reality, back in the royal families of this time, you had to be worried about your own son raising up, or your nephew, or someone three times removed, there was constant intrigue and a threat to the throne. You needed to be paranoid. So Nehemiah was used to navigating a paranoid king who had just recently, perhaps five to 10 years before this incident, had gone and banned the building of any walls in any city, and why wouldn't you? Again, why would you allow people to build a fortified city when you're the king? Why would you give them a foothold of power to threaten who you were. So here we have this supreme organizer, this person familiar with power and politics, this this man familiar with navigating the paranoid, asking and looking for a way of doing something which is against the current edict of the king, of a paranoid king. So we have someone familiar with what it's like to live in the busy, complicated, real, pluralist world of the time. Now what's Nehemiah's response when he gets the news? He's sitting court, his brother and some of his friends come and they tell him that Jerusalem is in a shameful state, it's embarrassing. Uh, that the walls that had, they'd been given permission to rebuild the temple, that they'd have been burnt down, they're constantly being harassed. And uh, he hears that news while he's sitting court, he's probably got his own big office, Quite close to the where the king is, these people are welcomed in. They tell him that news, and what's his response? And we read that in verse one. Sorry, chapter one, verse four. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. What's Nehemiah's response? Well, we see two groups of things here: weeping and mourning and fasting and praying. Now it sounds like there's four things, but actually I think as we unpack this, you're gonna see that they're all about a life, a rhythm, a discipline of prayer. Weeping and mourning. By the world's values, Jerusalem is one of the biggest, sorry, I should say smallest backwaters that existed at the time. There is a town, I looked up on the internet, which is the most irrelevant, smallest, insignificant town in the U.S.? And if anyone's from that town, I apologize. It's not my, my opinion, but it's a town called Ostrich, Alabama. How many of you have heard of Ostrich, Alabama? Not many of you. Okay. So can you imagine number two in the, in the government of New York saying, sorry, I want to go and do my thing in Ostrich, Alabama. This is somebody who's value system seems completely at whack with the world's value system. Jerusalem is a no place. He's at the center of the, of the greatest place, Susa, at the, of the greatest empire at his time in world history. Somehow for him, Jerusalem is the center of the universe. But that's only because he understands what true worship is so somehow he's got to a place when he hears that where true worship is not happening is not being able to happen where there's blocks and things getting in the way of true worship his response is one of weeping and grieving and we ask ourselves how is that possible it's because he's already spent Time in prayer. He's already developed a sense of values that come from knowing God's mind and knowing God's heart. He is weeping and mourning because his values are aligned with God's values and not with the world's values. He's been sitting in prayer. He he has a need to weep and mourn because he sees He sees the world through the eyes that God sees the, the world, not the way the world sees itself. So we see that straight away, that that sign of weeping and mourning, that looking around and seeing things are not the way they're supposed to be, that reaction of grief and sadness, of lament, is a response of prayer. It's the response of a life of prayer spent aligning our thoughts and our hearts with God's thoughts and with God's heart. Second thing we see is he fasted and he prayed. Now you might think fasting and praying are different, and in some senses they are. But the reason we fast is that we have a physiological response that reminds us that we are praying about something. That we feel hungry and we say, oh, I could satisfy myself, or I could pray about something which is not satisfied in the world around me. So praying is a, a, a fasting is a way of disciplining ourselves into a life of prayer. So he prayed and fasted, and this part is not so much a lament, a mourning, a grieving, a weeping. This is where he prays, he requests, to enter into the story, into God's story, to allow his story to become part of God's story, to, to participate in God's story with his gifts and his talents. And what he, what he does here is quite profound. So let's look, firstly, at verse Uh, chapter 1 verse 5 we see something here very interesting as he begins this prayer Lord the God of heaven the great and the awesome God now we are used to coming before God saying father we're used to that intimacy and that intimacy is really important and good but also important is and good is remembering the bigness and the awesomeness and the faithfulness of God, he goes on to say, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him. See, Nehemiah knows how to talk to a king because he serves an earthly king. He understands the language of respect, the understand the language of obedience, the understanding, the concept of submission. Even more so then, he sees that to not just an earthly king, but to the king of and creator and sustainer of the universe, that submission, that honor, that reverence, that respect, is as important, more important, than it is to an earthly king. And we see that uh, in verse 11, where we see his recognition of who he is, who God is, and who King Xer- Artaxerxes is to in relation to God. In verse 11 it says, let your ear be attentive to the prayers of this your servant and the prayers of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of, and we don't get a big royal title here for Xerxes, in the presence of this man. So he gets it. Here is the chief number two Head of the Secret Service, primary policy advisor, political strategy advisor, to the number one person, the most powerful person in the known universe, recognizing that God stands way above that. And his faithfulness and loyalty to God transcends, doesn't contradict, but it transcends his loyalty to the king. And then we see again something interesting, because there's a word in this verse 11 which uh, we have to put together with some words in some other verses to see something quite profound here. It says in verse 11, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, today. So this today happens if we look back in verse one in the month of Kislev. Now if we go over to chapter two where he actually stands before the king We see that it's not actually happening anymore in the month of Kislev, but in the month of Nisan. So this prayer that he prayed today, and tomorrow, and the next day, there are four months between Kislev and Nisan. So this daily prayer that he makes is a prayer that's done asking for the ability to stand before Xerxes and and address this issue of what's going on in Jerusalem. The opportunity to bring the values that he has the heart and the mind of God to enter into that story in a way which is relevant in the context that he finds himself. He's been praying that for four months after hearing the news before he finally gets to stand before Xerxes. Now, could be boring, right? The same prayer again and again. How many times have you done that? I've tried it. I've got these prayer lists, right? I write them out, I have a book. How many books have I started? I pray for Haiti, I, I, I pray for world peace, I, pr- I pray for COVID to end. And every now and again I get this burst of strength and I pray for them again, but I treat them like shopping lists, way too often. My prayer life is anemic and shallow. But this four months of prayer was not, God, help me talk to Xerxes, amen. God, help me talk to Xerxes, amen. God, help me talk to Xerxes, amen. God, Amen. This is an integrative prayer, a thoughtful, integrative prayer process that's gone on for four months. And through this prayer process, a plan has evolved. In fact, multiple plans have had through this prayer. See, before he can go before a paranoid king, he has gotta work out, how can I bring this up without getting my head cut off? Because you can't go before a king and ask for whatever you want. Especially, Especially a paranoid king that's going to see their number two advisor wanting to go somewhere else to build a wall around a city, it's going to be a threat to Artaxerxes. It's going to be perceived as a threat. The chances of getting his head cut off here are pretty high. So he needs a strategy to walk and stand before Artaxerxes. That's one thing he needs to know. Plus, his friends come, his brother come and tell him, look, things are a mess. And he's like, great administrator but he's not gonna pluck a plan out of the air this prayerful thoughtful process just like Wilkinson's prayerful thoughtful process of reading Time magazine delving in finding out bringing back to prayer of God how can I engage with these gangs he's thoughtfully integratively prayed and researched and we see that because when he talks to King Artaxerxes it's not an unstructured ramble he knows exactly what he wants. First of all, he needs a leave of absence. Secondly, he needs to be appointed governor. Thirdly, he needs a letter giving him safe passage. Fourthly, he needs timber. This is a fully worked plan and he only got here because over this four-month period he's praying and praying and integrating, and not the shopping list prayer. His life is his prayer and his action, his prayer and his behaviors, his prayer and his thoughts are integrated together. He's dialoguing with God. He is planning with God. He is thinking through the way he lives his life and what he needs to do with God all the time. A deep, thoughtful, integrative prayer life. We see in verses of chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 that he has to overcome his fear because of he's asking a paranoid king to leave and build a road. We see in verse 6 and 8 that he needs all of these things, the leave of absence, the appointing of government, the state's passage, and the timber. And so we see this integrative life-framing prayer in chapter 1. But then in chapter 2, verse 4, just before he's about to walk before Artaxerxes, or when Artaxerxes says, what's up? You look a little, so he's... He's instituted that first plan. How do I get out of Xerxes' attention without getting my head cut off? Out Xerxes has noticed him and asked him, "What's going on?" He's terrified. He admits as much. He says, "I was very much afraid. I was very much afraid." And then, what does he say? Um, he says. Uh, But I said to the king, may the king live forever. That's his strategy, not to get his head cut off. And then in verse 4, when the king says, what do you want? He said, then I prayed to the God of heaven. That's one of those shotgun prayers. He finds himself, he's been praying and praying and praying and praying and planning and planning and planning and integratively working through what he's going to do. And he finally gets an opportunity to do that. And the first thing he does is, Lord, help me. And then he starts to talk. So there's this idea that his whole life, even those moments, those shotgun prayers, are integrated into what he's doing. Now, what does this look like for us? What does it look like to invite God into our daily routine, seeing our story as being part of his big story? Now, it changes us. It changes the way we live. It's a part of the constant process of covenant renewal. First of all, it focuses our faithfulness. True worship becomes the center of our universe. Because we're praying, because we're going before God, because we're asking, God, do you want, where do you want me to go? Where do you want me to be? Where do you want me to behave? How do you want me to deal with this calamity, God? Secondly, it helps us sort through the dross. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, both the sin dross and also the false callings. And I think this is one of the most uncomfortable and hard pieces of this integrative thoughtful prayer. Now one of the uh, couple of examples of this, it is good, it is good to be involved in recreation. It's good to play a certain amount of video games. It's good to, to, to just have downtime. It's not good to have too much. How do you manage those things? Now. Most of us aren't very good at that, but if you've invited God into your life, you sit there, play video games with God, and I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's really how you should think about your life. I do everything. I do my relaxation. I do my arguing with my wife. I do my work. I do it all with God. Then there's a point where, by definition, God is going to hold you accountable and say, it's time to stop playing chess and it's time to do your paperwork it's time to stop playing video games and get on with your homework there's a prayerful submission in that process of working through what it means to be faithful on a moment by moment life by life inviting God into the integrative process uh, of prayer as we move forward think about that's that's more of the true worship or avoiding the false callings we're called to recreation We're called to fun, we're called to go out to dinner, we're called to spend a certain amount of money on things which give us joy. We're also called to be frugal. We're called to be, to work hard. How do we balance those things? Through integrative prayer, by constantly being aware of what God is calling us to because we've invited him in. Now, of course, When it comes to sin, it's very hard to actively sin before God when you've invited him in. There's a built-in accountability system. It's very hard to, to, to turn to things like pornography or anger or fighting in vicious and spiteful ways when you've invited God in and you've walked because you've basically got to push him away. So that process of having God in and part of and integrated keeps us focused on our own faithfulness. It helps us sort through our dross. And I would also like to say that there's those times when we have to keep God, invite God into the silly little moments. Like, hey God, I need a parking spot. Because it's like when you're on the subway. If you've been on the bus or the subway and you hear someone on the phone and they're talking to their friend, and, then, and you can hear everything they say, well, then I said this, and then she said this, and then I couldn't believe that, uh, then he did this, and then that. And, and you're like, my gosh, this is the world's most boring conversation, and I have to listen to it. Well, actually, to God, that's not boring. God wants to hear that. He wants to know where you're at. He wants to emotionally process with you as you're living your life. You need to be... Bringing those moments to God, processing your feelings with Him. Now, let me give you an example of this, and I'm going to give you a warning about this example afterwards. If you're bringing God into all those moments, and you happen to be someone who struggles with some sort of addiction, like overeating, and you find yourself anxious or nervous, And you then say, oh, I'm feeling anxious and nervous. I'm going to go buy an ice cream. I'm going to go buy some candy. I'm going to go buy, do this. If you're processing that with God, you can bring that before him and say, God, I'm feeling anxious. I really want to do this, but I really don't want to do it. Help me through this, God. Walk with me. Now, the caveat is God may not be calling you to lose weight or to eat healthily. And I'm saying that's not important, but what I am saying is, Without that integrative prayer that's worked out what God has called you to, you can't just use God and your prayer life as a self-help process to lose weight or get fit. However, if in your integrative prayer, God is calling you to look after your body, to take care, then you can bring that to him. So these two things go together, the shotgun prayer, the... moment by moment, can I have a parking spot prayer, goes together with that deep, integrative prayer. What are you calling me to, God? How do we work through this together, God? So prayer is a rhythm leading to rhythm. It cleans out the dross. It reduces our anxiety. It gives us healthy coping strategies. Too busy to pray or really too busy not to pray. Okay. Hopefully you've got a picture of prayer which is a little deeper. It's integrative. It's in every aspect of our life. It's the way we plan and live. It's also shotgun. It's moment by moment processing what we're feeling. I want to conclude with a reality check. This idea in theology of what's called a hope horizon. If you listen to the beginning of this sermon, we talked about this idea of a cycle. Calamity, prayer action. Calamity, prayer action. Calamity is optional and out of our control, which sort of implies that we're bumbling along from one calamity to another, working through this prayer and action routine. And there's some truth to this, but there's also this implication in the text that prayer leads to action where God is gonna miraculously intervene and we're gonna get a good outcome like in the case of Jeremiah, oh, sorry, Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah and Christians need to understand the idea of what hope horizons are. In fact, the book of Nehemiah has this idea of hope horizons all the way through it. You see, if you just read chapters one and two, you'd think happy ending until you got to chapter four, and then everything tanks. Then there's another happy ending. Then everything tanks in chapter six, and then there's another happy ending, and then everything gets really, really good. There's a Hollywood ending. It's fantastic. There's a dedication ceremony and everything in chapter thir- uh, 12, and everything tanks again. And Nehemiah is completely frustrated in 13. And yet, if you look at the big picture of Nehemiah, might, maybe you'd say, wow, those walls that he built, they lasted for 500 years. That was a success. But then in AD, 70 AD, they were destroyed. Oh, was that a failure? What is this, success, failure, success, failure? It's it's hard to sort of, in these little narrative windows, get a full picture of what's going on. It's the story of our lives, right? We have these hope horizons, but they're not fully complete. For example, if you have a career and you miss getting a promotion or you get laid off, perhaps you get employed again. So that's the intervention, the break-in, the prayer response, the integrative prayer and those shotgun prayers leads to being employed again. And you're partially employed or less, getting less pay than you were before, perhaps. And so there's this partially realized sense of hope that's come out of that. Or perhaps you're married and end up getting divorced or your spouse dies early and you recover from the grief and you find a place of service and contentment. But there's also that sense of loss and something missing. The the hope horizon has been partly realized, but not fully realized. Or perhaps you have finally got sober. You've lost that sobriety and won it back, but you're in that constant struggle to stay sober. And it's tiring and it's exhausting. So part of the hope horizon has been realized. Your life is so much better than it was before, but it's still hard and you're working through these, these pieces and you constantly have to be vigilant and it's tiring. A partially realized hope horizon again. Or perhaps you have a serious mental illness and you feel suicidal all the time and you, you try maybe to commit suicide or harm yourself and you finally get on good medication and you follow a safety plan and, and you're faithfully integrating all of those things into your life but there's still a lingering depression and so life is better and it's on track, and you're functioning, but there's still a a piece of depression that's sitting there and lingering and that hope horizon is partial but it's not complete. And we get a clue about this from Nehemiah's life from John 14, 19 to 26. This is where the woman of the well comes up and says, I can see you're a great prophet our ancestors worshiped on this mountain but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. He goes on to say uh, that you need to worship in spirit and truth. And, exp- and she recognizes that he's the Messiah. And we see that there is a big story out working here. So John four nineteen to 6, we see that the destruction after the temp- of the temple of the temple walls, after 500 years when it's sacked, a few years after this story with the woman in the well, it's okay. There is a Hollywood ending to this story, but you have to see the full hope horizon. The hope horizon has to extend to the end of the age, to the coming of Christ, to the wiping away of all the tears. So every time we integrate prayer, and we work through it, and God works in that, and we experience God's hand, and we do those shotgun prayers, every time we experience that victory, that sense of faithfulness and and working in that context where God has brought us into his story, it is a small foretaste of the big story. Every small act of faithfulness that we do helps us enter into this big story, to get that foretaste of the big story. And prayer action needs to be seen and it needs to be framed through the lens of the big story. This idea of hope horizons is how we make sense of the brokenness and still hang on to the delight of faithfulness in the hope of that completed hope horizon at the end and enjoy the small tastes of hope horizons that are before then, in our sobriety, in our recovery from grief, in, in our job that isn't fully satisfying but at least keeps food on the table, in our ability to navigate our mental health even though it's not completely resolved. Living in this integrative, shotgun, faithful, prayerful way is at the center of covenant renewal. And this is what Paul meant when he said, pray without ceasing. So let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, through this story of Nehemiah, really the great civil servant, not the great builder, the great navigator of the pluralist world, the one who shows us that there is no world that isn't yours and there isn't any place where we can't integrate your mind and your heart into what we're doing through integrative prayer. There's no place where we can't constantly process our feelings and emotions with you through shotgun prayer. Lord help us to see Nehemiah as leading the way not in building a building But teaching us about covenant renewal, calling us to covenant faithfulness, calling us to experience you, calling us to foretaste the final hope horizon in everything we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.